Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 9 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. As we approach the end of 2007, I think it's good to look back and reflect upon the progress we've made together this year. This episode is the ninth in the series, a series that continues to refine our understanding of space and time. When I started recording earlier this year, I intended for this to be a weekly show. As I now look back, that didn't happen. One of the things I learned is that it takes time to produce quality content, more time than I had initially assumed. This, in a nutshell, is why I've taken about four to eight weeks to produce each episode. So as we venture into 2008, I'm going to think about ways of creating content more frequently. Perhaps going back to shorter podcasts will help. That said, I would rather have a longer delay between episodes to maintain the quality rather than produce something more frequently, but misses the mark. In either case, I appreciate all of the listeners that have found this series, as well as the feedback and words of encouragement that I've received. All of this is very much appreciated. In today's show, I want to talk about some of the misconceptions about Einstein's theory. I'd say that these misconceptions started, I believe, inadvertently, with Einstein himself and have continued today. In fact, while I didn't realize it at the time, one of these misconceptions raised its head at my first meeting with a physics professor at San Francisco State about five years ago. During that meeting, I outlined my findings and what I thought was the problem with Einstein's derivation. Unfortunately, at that time, I was not at all prepared for the criticisms he would raise. At one point, he countered with, It seems to me like you're getting length confused with points. Einstein's equations are for points, not lengths. At that time, it hadn't dawned on me that the difference between lengths and points would be significant. The truth is, from the perspective of anyone who believes in Einstein's version of special relativity, he was right. Einstein's equations appear to deal with points, not lengths. In fact, I'm sure many of you have heard the term space-time coordinates, or simply space-time points. Now, let's fast forward five years. Let's fast forward to today. Today, I'm happy to respond to the professor's remark, uh, to respond to the point of view that Einstein's equations deal with points. And this characteristic needs to be addressed because, as I hope to show in today's show, Einstein's equations actually deal with lengths, not points. And this change in perspective will have implications on how the equations are interpreted and how they are subsequently used. So in order to get the most value out of today's show, I'm going to assume that you're familiar with the material in episode two of the series or in the stores presentation, as well as the material that I presented in episode seven. So if you haven't already listened to those shows, you might want to review them first, as I'm going to use terms and concepts that I've previously presented. So let's dive in. I want to start with a real simple equation that will get us grounded. And that equation is length equals time times speed. In other words, if we know how long, or the amount of time, that something has been traveling, and we also know its speed, then we can multiply those two values together to find out how far it has traveled. 
So this is a general equation that we can make more specific by providing a specific equation or value for speed or by providing a specific equation or value for time. But the key characteristic you have to remember is that if you multiply some amount of time by a speed, you will end up with a length. This is an important concept and one that Einstein emphasizes in section two of his 1905 paper when he states in equation form that velocity equals the length of the light path divided by the time interval. Now, this is in a slightly different form than what I just presented, but it is the same equation. So why did I spend a little bit of time talking about a rather straightforward equation? Well, because right off the bat, things can get confusing if we're not careful in how we use this equation. In fact, it's not the equation I'm concerned with, but rather the concept behind the equation. Specifically, it's very easy for us to confuse this length equation for one that gives us a specific point in space. And today, I'll use the term space interchangeably with a point in a coordinate system. So let me explain what I mean. If we start measuring distance starting at the origin, then you will end up at an endpoint. And the line that you draw from the origin to this endpoint has a length. Let's call it L. The problem is that L is not only the length traveled, but it also represents a particular point in the coordinate system. In this case, the number that we associate with the length is also the number that corresponds to the point where we are in the coordinate system. So let me give you an example. Let's say I measure something from the origin to the 10 meter mark. We can say that the length is 10 meters, and we can also say that our endpoint is located at the 10 meter mark. So the number 10 can be used to represent a length, and it can be used to represent a point. So if I don't carry over my units to know whether I'm talking about a length or a point, I might get confused if I just provide the answer 10. So this raises a very important question. And that is, can the same equation that we use for length be used to find an endpoint? And the answer is, of course it can. But doing so requires that at least two things be true. And if they're not true, then you run the risk of taking a length and using it incorrectly as a point, and this can lead to incorrect conclusions about what the numbers actually mean. So what are the two things that must be true if the equation is going to produce an endpoint in addition to a length? Well, first, the starting point for the measurement has to be the origin, or it has to be zero. So if I walk 10 meters starting at the origin, I will arrive at an endpoint that is marked with a 10. So I'm at the 10 meter endpoint and I've walked a total distance of 10 meters. But what happens if I started to walk my 10 meter journey, but I started at the five meter mark instead of the origin? Well, in this case, I'll end up at the 15 meter endpoint. Because I didn't start at the origin, the equation will tell me that I've walked 10 meters, but this isn't where I am in space. Second, the equation requires 
that you're always moving in the same direction, that you never change directions. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Again, let's assume that I'm at the origin and I walk 10 meters. I will arrive at the 10 meter mark. What happens if I walk 10 more meters? Well, it depends. In one case, if I continue walking in the same direction, I would now be at the 20 meter mark. But if I turned around and walked in the other direction, then I'm back at the origin. In both cases, I've walked a total distance of 20 meters, but I'm not at the same endpoint. So the key thing I want you to remember is that while this equation can be used to find length or points, if it's going to be used for a point, these two requirements must be met. You have to start at the origin and you have to continue in the same direction. If these conditions are not met, then you can only find a length. You cannot find an endpoint. Now that we've established some practical requirements on how the equations can be used and interpreted, let's take a look at Einstein's 1905 derivation. Again, I've summarized the four algebraic steps for Einstein's Xi derivation in episode two of the podcast, and again in the stores presentation. You'll see that Einstein says length equals time times speed when he states xi, or length, equals tau, or time, times c, which in this case is the speed of light. Now, many people have named this equation the wavefront equation, although as you can see from our conversation today, it's just a length equation that we've already talked about. So, what we need to do now is to determine whether or not this equation applies to both lengths and endpoints, or just to lengths. Beginning with this equation, you'll see three substitutions. Since each of these substitutions is of equivalent statements, the rules of algebra tells us that we are finding a more specific instance of a general equation. In other words, we're just refining this general length equation and making it more specific. In this case, we give it a specific value for speed, c, and a specific equation for time, tau. Now, if we don't look much further than this, or we don't consider the material life presented in the earlier episodes, it would be hard to conclude whether or not the equations produce points or lengths or both. That said, reviewing Einstein's derivation from this perspective helps us in one very important area. I know a lot of people have argued that Einstein's final transformation equations are for fixed points and his more general xi equals tau times c equation is for wavefronts and that the two are not the same thing at all. And while this is what we've been taught, I have to ask, at which point in his 1905 derivation does the act of algebraic substitution change the general wavefront equation into something completely different, the fixed point equation, where we now say that the two are so dissimilar as to be different? The answer is, it doesn't. Again, we have to go back to the rules of algebra and find that all Einstein has done was to take what we commonly call the wavefront equation and has made it more specific. No matter how you look at his 1905 derivation, what people call the fixed point equation is just a more specific case of the wavefront equation.
Just remember that even if you decide to name the resulting equation something different, Einstein's own derivation shows that this is just a more specific instance of his general length equation. And this is one of the key points that I'd like you to take away from today's show. So, so far, we've talked about a concept, length versus points. And we've looked at Einstein's xi derivation from this perspective. But I still have to show why the distinction between length and a point is significant. So, with this context, I invite you to reread the first three sections of Einstein's 1905 paper, up to the point where he invokes the partial differential equation. As you read his work, just jot down in the margin whether or not you think he's talking about length or points. In fact, you should be able to see that he's talking about length and time and speed. Sometimes he, he uses length and speed to find time, and at other times he uses time and speed to find length. Even in Einstein's book entitled Relativity, the examples he gives are based on length, not on points. So in Einstein's own words, we are looking at length, speed, and time, not points. Now, if you can revisit the PDF file associated with episode 7, you'll see an example that I provided using a dog and a bus. I want to first remind everyone that the diagrams and the examples are part of a model, a way of helping us to explain a concept. It's not the world, but if you look at how the model works, if it will give you something to grab hold on as you think about these concepts. So, first, the dog runs a certain length from the rear of the bus to the front of the bus. In this case, the dog is running in the street from the origin to the front of the bus, which is moving forward at velocity v. When the dog has run the length of what I called the long line, he will have reached the front of the bus. But notice what happens here, and this is very important. The dog turns around. That's the important thing. So when the dog runs the length of the short line, he's actually heading back towards the origin. And this is extremely important because when the dog has run a total length that is found by adding the short line to the long line, this is not his position in space. It is not his position in the coordinate system. This is similar to my running from the origin to the 10 meter mark and then turning around to run 10 meters back to the origin. While I've run a total of 20 meters, I am not at the 20 meter mark in space. In the case of the dog, his position is found along the x-axis by simply subtracting the short line from the long line. Now I'm going to ask you to remember what I said earlier about the constraints in using this equation, this length equation, for points. First, measurement starts at the origin, and second, the direction does not change. Since the derivation assumes that the dog travels in one direction and then changes direction, one of the key assumptions required for the equation to be used as points does not hold true. So while the equation cannot be used to find an endpoint, it can continue to be used to find a length. So let's consider this in a little bit more detail. 
The reason we cannot use the equation to find an endpoint is because a key assumption in the derivation, both my derivation and Einstein's, is that the object under observation, in my case it's a dog, in Einstein's case it's a beam of light, travels in two directions. Remember, there's an equation associated with moving left to right along the x-axis, and there's another equation associated with moving right to left along the x-axis. Einstein describes this behavior in section 2 of his 1905 paper, and I've graphically illustrated it in episode 7, where the long line represents the left-to-right movement, and the short line represents the right-to-left movement. Remember, the Xi equation will tell you the answer to one-half of the total distance. What this means is that if you've traveled a total length of Xi, you have traveled in one direction, left to right. And we know this because Xi is less than the long line, which means that we haven't changed directions yet. So one Xi represents both a point and a length. So where, where's the dog after he's run a distance of two Xi? Well, the derivation itself required that the dog travel in two directions. So, when the dog has traveled a total length of two xi, it will have traveled the entire length of the long line, and then it will have backtracked for the entire length of the short line. So while the dog has traveled a distance of two xi, this is not its point in space, not its point along the x-axis. In a similar way, when you look at Einstein's derivation for a beam of light and look at the math in the same way, you'll find out that it is also bidirectional in nature and behaves in the same manner. So I invite you to review sections 1, 2, and 3 of Einstein's derivation, and you'll see this discussion, this bidirectional discussion, more at play. Importantly, you'll see it in his function invocation when he sets up his partial differential equation. And it is this bidirectional movement that is inherent in his derivation that limits the equation's use to lengths that cannot be used in a general sense to apply to points. This bidirectional movement has not been incorporated into any of the concepts associated with special relativity that I've seen and it represents one of the key conceptual differences between it and my model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. So while I've given you a few misconceptions to think about, I still need to answer the overarching question, why does this shift in perspective matter? Why should we care? Well, for starters, if we recognize that we're talking about lengths instead of points, this alone means that the established meaning of the equations need to be revisited. And this means that an explanation such as that offered by the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems can provide a new explanation of the equations, what they mean, and how they're used. And this new explanation has the ability to remove some, if not all, of the paradoxes and limitations associated with special relativity. At the same time, it gives us a model that continues to explain the experimental evidence in a way that still makes sense. 
if you consider the examples I gave in episode 7, then what this means is that the equations apply to things that oscillate, or things that move in one direction and then in another. And one place where we see this happen again and again is with frequency, or when we talk about it as length, as wavelength. In fact, this bidirectional nature is illustrated every time we use a sine wave to represent frequency. So when you consider a frequency or a wavelength type experiment, such as Michelson-Morley or Ive Stilwell, then the equations apply with this new understanding of what's being measured, something that is oscillating as part of an incomplete coordinate system. And what's exciting to me is that the revised equations yield equal or better results than Einstein's special relativity equations, and this is determined by the amount of error between the actual result and the expected result. So not only does the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems make conceptual sense, it seems to be supported by the experimental evidence. So two points I want you to take away from today's discussion are that, first, the equations are length transformations, not point transformations, and two, that this conclusion is supported by the bidirectional movement that is assumed in the derivation, in both the math and in the words describing the math. Unfortunately, during the derivation, Einstein did not keep track of units with his equations, and this led him to subsequently misuse lengths as points, and this misconception has carried forward. Fortunately for us, a review of the derivation with an understanding of the two constraints that must be met if the equations are going to be used to produce points shows that the conditions were not met, and thus they can only be used to represent lengths. The same insight into the bidirectional nature of frequency helps us explain why frequency or wavelength type experiments align well with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. So this brings us to the end of episode 9 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. Again, I know there's a lot of material in today's show, and as always, I invite you to listen to it until you're comfortable with it. I also invite you to ask questions and send me your feedback. Uh, and, of course, your comments and suggestions. And I'd like to continue to get your help in, in spreading the word, so please tell others about the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. You can reach me at email at relativitychallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com. I hope that everyone has a safe and happy holiday season. As always, I hope you'll re return again next time. So until then, be well. Bye.